The following edition of The Fourth Estate contains offensive language. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney, on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name is Peter Frey, and I'm the co-director of the Centre for Media Transition at University of Technology, Sydney, and my producer today is Anthony Dockrell. Today's guest has written a book, a very big book, a doorstop of a thing, and it's mainly about his life in journalism. It is fearless and it is funny, much like its author. It's called On Air, and its author is, of course, Mike Carlton. Broadcaster, extraordinaire, foreign correspondent, columnist, naval historian, a man of many talents. Welcome to the program. Golly, I'm <laughs> obsessed. It's nice to be here. <laughs> How are you? You good? Yeah, yeah, never better. Yeah, I swam two kilometers this morning. I, I could eat a lion. Mm, I look forward to seeing you eat that lion later. Later. Yes. Uh, so look, there are many places, and congratulations on the book, Mike. It's it Thanks, is a, man. it's Thanks. a great it's a great read, um, and there are many places to start in your story. Many places. Uh, you know, you're a star and the stalwart of the ABC. You're the king of breakfast talk radio in Sydney, a massive hit oh. in London. You've been there and done that, and then some. But I thought we'd start, uh, in a sense, with an ending. Yeah. Uh, Let's deal with the end of your time as a columnist at the Sydney Morning Herald after 20 years and uh, a, a slur that was made against you that you were an anti-Semite. Um, so let's, I'll just paint the picture. The new career as a naval historian is going swimmingly. You've got the yep. column. You've got a couple of books under your belt, right? And then you write a column about Israel. Yeah. Uh, most of the, more to the point uh, about the Israeli uh, defense force attacks on Gaza. Yeah. It's Saturday, July 26, 2014, and the column headline is um, Israel's rank and rotten fruit is being called fascism. And it starts, I quote, the images from Gaza are searing a gallery of death and horror. Yeah. Later in the, in the column, you actually criticize Hamas, but it's kind of all a bit late by then. Your words plus the cartoon by Glenn Olive light a fuse that burns so hot that it ends your career as a columnist. Why? Uh, what what happened? Was, I mean, talk us through this from there. It was a uh, it was a very hurtful thing, actually, because I'm I'm not in the slightest bit anti-Semitic. I'm I'm convinced of that. But uh, passions were aroused in the in the Jewish community, and particularly in the in the Israeli lobby, which is uh, very strong, very powerful, and very well connected in this country. And they didn't like what I what I had written. Mm. Uh, the word fascism was not mine, actually, but. Uh, well, that appeared in both the headline and the column, but it had been used, first of all, by, by an Israeli Jewish journalist, Gideon mm. Levy, in uh, Haaretz. Yeah. Uh, and I had quoted from him in that. Uh, that was all lightly swept aside. Mm. Um, Levy is one of the great journalists. He is, he is, he is a, a passionate observer of Israel, as an Israeli. He doesn't like a lot of what he sees. Uh, so some of what I had said paralleled exactly what he said. Mm. But that that was swept aside, and I and I was accused of uh, of anti-Semitism. I, I knew I would be, and any working journalist at, at, a, at a reasonably senior level knows of the Israel lobby and and its power and reach uh, for both good and bad. Mm-hmm. Well, and I'd expect I'd expected a torrent of criticism, but what I got was a torrent of obscenity and filth. I mean, 
quite st- staggers me still uh, how vile it was. I was accused of being Hitler's whore and worse, you know, Hitler's sodomite and so on. And this mm-hmm. torrent of this stuff came in. Yeah, let's uh, talk, yeah, I, I know it was an incredible period, and you you hit that button. You, it was one of the great, uh, if that's the, right, the wrong word, but one of the most amazing social media storms of that year. In fact, of most years, really. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I copped it for a few days and thought, oh, well, it'll all blow over. It didn't. It just intensified. Mm. Uh, and so I thought, bugger. And I, and I hit back uh, at these people in, uh, in fairly frank language. I told a lot of them to get fucked, mm. uh, et cetera, et cetera, which I probably should not have done as a, as a, as a Herald columnist, et cetera. But uh, my blood was boiling and my, my Irish was up, if you will. Mm. Oh, that's what I, I mean, that's one of the interesting aspects of this was the response of the Herald, uh, you know, and I speak as a former editor in chief of the Herald. Of course, I should admit that, but so the, but I wasn't at this point. Uh, the Sydney Morning Herald first thought to, um, well, it took them a while, but they first thought to suspend you for a few weeks, a kind of yeah. a, a punishment. Yeah. Uh, and you were re- willing to cop that. I mean, reluctantly, obviously, but you were willing to cop that. But reluctantly, then, but yeah, I thought it was probably a way out of the impasse. Yeah, yeah. and but then, uh, kind of out of nowhere, they decided to basically. Suspend you indefinitely, and and yeah. and then you quit. No more. Yeah, I, that was a very torrid day. I I earlier had a, a phone call suggesting that my mother was at death's door, and there was even talk of turning off a life support system. So it was. I've been copying all this abuse, and then to have this this personal uh, burden laid on me like that hmm. uh, was heavy. And we're just going to bed, and then I got this phone call from uh, I can't remember his name, Sean Aylmer. Hmm. Uh, a, a poo bar of some middling rank at the, at the Herald saying they decided to suspend me indefinitely. And that was just the last straw. And I said, don't bother, I just quit, fuck off. Mm. Uh, and, and that was that. That was the end of 20 years at the Herald. Yeah. Do you, reg- uh, do you regret any of that? No. You don't no, regret it? No, I'd do it again. I'd write the same column again. It was. Uh, I thought it was reasonably balanced. I, mean, I, I hit both Israel and Hamas. Mm. Uh, I'm accused of mass of war crimes as well. I would write the column again. I probably wouldn't respond to the criticism in the same way again. I'd, I'd just sit back and let it wash over me and let them do their worst. Mm. But no, I, I don't regret it. I don't regret. I, I was sad to lose the Herald column. Although at the same stage, I thought I was becoming stale and repetitive a little. It was getting harder to write fresh, freshly, and, and in an interesting and original way. So it was probably time to go. Well, after 20 uh, years, you were missed. a bang rather than a whimper. Yeah. Well, it certainly was a bang. Yeah. You, in the book, you are critical about the Herald, and you say at some point that it doesn't stand for much these days. What, With that in mind, what do you think of the nine Fairfax merger? Are you sad to see oh, the name Fairfax I, I gone? Think, I think it's dreadful. I'm, I'm, I feel this strange sentimental attachment to, to, to Fairfax. Uh, having worked in one way or another, mostly at radio. I mean, I was a full-time Fairfax employee in radio. The column was only, you know, I was a contributor, as they say. Mm, mm. Uh, and when we worked for Fairfax in the 70s and 80s, of course, we thought they were vile, you know, um, worst, uh, worst uh, <laughs> um, you know, ruling class and, uh, and, and grand seigneurial ambitions and all that sort of stuff. Looking back, they, they were particularly under the, the late James Fairfax. They were the most benevolent of proprietors. They basically let their journalists get on with it, as I'm sure you know. Mm, that's right. Uh, a golden time, as, it, as we look back. It was the last golden era under James Fairfax's chairmanship before the, the idiot young Warwick uh, barged in and, and, uh, and wrecked things forever. Well, you'll be interested to know that the, on, the, on the forthcoming Fourth Estate, we have an interview with young Warwick Fairfax. You, I'm sure you'll be listening. 
Yeah, I wouldn't miss it. I wouldn't miss it. Absolutely. <laughs> I'll send you Good the link. Lord. Um, so, okay, let's move back. Uh, well, let's move on and, and back a bit. But so, I, I think the yeah, thing is bad. Because it, Why do you it, think it's bad? Because it, it narrows down uh, the scope of media ownership in this country. Yeah. Uh, it places it firmly under the chairmanship of Peter Costello, whose partisan uh, views are well known. And, and already they've started sacking journalists. I think 12 went just, uh, just um, well, a couple of days ago. Uh, and obviously, there'll be many, many more to come. Yeah, that wasn't in. That was a surprise to me. Uh, that wasn't in the script. I mean, all along they've been saying all the savings are in the back end, and um, of course, I don't know why. Why we ever believed that? Why do well, we? Well, they would. They would say that, wouldn't they? Yes, yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true. Um, let's let's talk about you. Uh, it's really hard to do justice to a career in journalism of some fifty years. Fifty years is incredible. Uh, uh, even, but journalism for you was a bit of an afterthought, wasn't it? I wanted to join the navy. Yes, <laughs> I was. I'd, I'd had a, an interest in naval history from uh, from my childhood days, and I, I had visions of myself in a uh, assault encrusted officers, Cap Conning destroyers on the bridge in the North Atlantic, nineteen forty two, sinking U boats, and mm. I had these romantic dreams. It never came to pass. I didn't have any mathematics. Mm. And the Navy likes you to have math so you don't bump into continents and other chips and things. <laughs> uh, but I could spell and I could write a mm. uh, little. I, I could, you know, what I did in my school holidays by Michael Carlton, age 12. Uh, and so I applied to all the newspapers I could think of, all of whom ignored me except the Daily Telegraph, which mm. offered me a job perhaps as a copy boy. And then as an afterthought, and it was an afterthought, I applied to the ABC. And for some strange reason, I, I have no knowledge even today why they accepted me but they did you must have said some you must have said something in that letter you there must have been something some magic in there somewhere i don't know i I haven't a clue i I just was a straightforward dear sir i would like to become a good journalist (laughs) and they wrote back and said i I think i left this out of the book they wrote back and said yes look could you please turn up at our office in keller street king's cross on such and such a day and um Keller Street was in a seedy back lane full of, you know, mm. third-rate knock shops and, and, and gambling joints and mm, so on. Mm, mm. And my mother actually said, on no account are you going to King's Cross. <laughs> and she, she rang the ABC and said, would it be possible to do the interview somewhere else? And I said, oh, yes, all right. And they did it at Gore Hill. I would have thought that would have meant instant disqualification <laughs> for journalists, just that. But even then I got the job. Well, your mother is a remarkable character, in in, in your, obviously, in your life, but in the book. I mean, yeah. you... Uh, Obviously, I owe a lot to her, um, and, it, yeah. and I, I'm not going to talk about it at length now, but it, for anyone who's, you know, thinking about their mums, uh, I recommend the book for that as, as well, because it's, it's a beautiful portrayal of you and your mother. Well, very briefly, she, she met and fell in love with a Catholic priest, got yeah. married, and nine months and 21 days later, I was born. Not just a Catholic priest, of course, a, a very famous Catholic priest at the time. Yeah, well, he'd he'd been a, an outstanding schoolboy athlete at St Joseph's College at Hunters Hill in Sydney, um, and then became an Olympic athlete. Went to the nineteen twenty eight Amsterdam Games, which are an unmitigated disaster all around for all concerned, or well, all the Australians concerned. Mm, mm. They all got sick or something. Uh, yeah, well, they all got sick, and that was it was a shocker. Mm. But um, he came back and was all set to go to the thirty two Games in Los Angeles. He'd set world records. He was setting, you know, world records. He was, at one stage, the fastest man in the world as a sprinter. Uh, But he tossed it all in, uh, joined the priesthood, the missionaries of the Sacred Heart, and vanished for all intents and purposes for another uh, 15 years, until Mm. in 1945 he married my mother. Yes, 
A remarkable, a remarkable part of the book. Um, but anyway, let's talk about journalism because this is a show about yep, journalism, sure. I guess. Um, but the world you talk about in the book is kind of all hard work and hard living. It all seems sort of very glamorous. You know, you covered the war in Vietnam, you know, the upheavals in Indonesia. You report from all over the place. And, yeah. and as I said earlier, you eventually rule the airwaves in this town and uh, and give <laughs> and give London a, a, a you know a good shake. Is it? Uh, was it like that? And, and you know, cause... yeah, it, it it actually was glamorous. You know, I, I, I look looking back on it. I mean, the journalism is a bit like prostitution. There, there are you know periods of intense activity followed by periods of standing around waiting for the next job. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it it was glamorous. It was exciting. You met interesting people. You travelled the world. When the ABC sent me over at the age, overseas for the first time at the age of twenty. Uh, they flew me first class around the world. It was incredibly oh, glamorous. Tell that to an and official. You met prime review. ministers and presidents and, yes. and film stars and rock singers and all sorts of the most fascinating people. So all that's kind of gone now, right? Well, it's, it's still there, but the, but the time pressures of now that there's no such thing as a news cycle anymore. It's twenty four seven. It never stops. Yeah. Uh, but in in the leisurely my leisurely days as a foreign correspondent, I would file one elegant story a day, perhaps, or if there was no particular news, mightn't file at all that day, mm. and then you know repair to the bar for a gin afterwards. Mm. Uh, so. And there was also more of a camaraderie in journalism in those days, too. There was fierce rivalry for a story. But journalists were, by and large, uh, a a far more bohemian lot Mm. 40, 50 years ago than they are today. Mm. And uh, they enjoyed the carousing and the the raffish air that journalism had in those days. It doesn't seem to exist anymore. Mm. Why is that? Because we're all so busy uh, filing five stories an hour or something. Yeah, and... Probably, probably the the downside of the university education. I think very few journalists went to university in those days. I, I certainly didn't. Yeah. Uh, so you, you're knocked about on the streets a bit. Mm. No, uh, okay. Now the journalists seem to, all, you know, they descend upon newspapers and, and the ABC and so on with three degrees, two foreign languages, and and uh, you know, a, a, a profound knowledge of economics. So do you think do you think journalists are too smart or too middle class? Yeah, probably, probably that's uh, that's true. I think it would be pretty hard for a a lower class mucker now to get in to get into journalism. Mm. Very hard indeed, I think. Mm. Uh, where 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 in those days uh, you could though. There are a lot of rough diamonds in journalism, mm. really rough diamonds, uh, who, who made a living at it mm. by, by, by talent and ambition alone, but not not by breeding. Mm. No, that's a fair point because I. I think I think it's a very opposite point to our times, and uh, it's an interesting point because, of course, losing that kind of, if you like, those those sorts of people, it means yeah. that our newsrooms are less diverse. Right? I, th- I, th- I think they are, yes, very much less diverse, and I think journalists too are too now chained to the to the keyboard and the internet, and I suspect there's not much getting out uh, and wearing out old fashioned shoe leather. Mm, mm. The beauty of your book, in part, is your candor, of course, about yourself and also about the limitations of journalism. You, you say, for instance, that you were never so foolish or arrogant to believe that you could make or unmake a political career. No. But, but wasn't that a sort of enticement? Wasn't there this idea that you could make or break in a political career all part of the thrill of it? Uh, I never thought I could make or break one. I thought I, thought I could make life entirely unpleasant for people I disapproved of. But mm. I mean, so Alan Jones, for example, mm. uh, bombards cabinet ministers with letters uh, mm. daily. Mm. Um, the whole thing. Mm. Uh, um, 
I, I never, I don't think I ever wrote to a minister in my entire career in any way, shape or form. And, uh, people like Jones believe they are, they are the kingmakers and, um, and men of destiny. I just thought I was an observer, not a participant. Mm. Yeah, we'll get to uh, your good friend Alan in a minute, but um, I thought I'd also talk to another one of your good friends, which is, uh, his name's Rupert, Rupert Murdoch. There's a, there's a great chapter in the book where you find yourself kind of by happen chance on the same luxury Fijian island as Rupert and, of course, yeah. and, and you can't talk shop. So what well, what did you make of it? Was one yeah. of those ridiculously luxurious places where you spend enormous amounts of money to live quite primitively, you know, mm. wriggling your sand and your toes in the sand. Mm. And I got off the got off the, the seaplane that took us there to this island and uh, was met on the wharf by a large Fijian lady saying, "Oh, you're a journalist. There's another one here, Mr. Rupert Murdoch." <laughs> uh, almost got back on the plane, but thought no. Uh, and Rupert was charming. Uh, he uh, and I've, I've often found with those people, if they choose to exercise charm, uh, they can uh, in lashings, bucket mm. loads of mm. stuff. That's uh, that's part of their mode of uh, uh, modus operandi. Yeah, you say he gave you insights. What were those? I just just listening to him. You know, just listening yeah, right. to his yeah. uh, his almost unconsciously how he wielded and exercised power and so on. Um, there was that, but the, the the biggest insight I think. Was when he dived down. We went out for a dive together, a little putt putt boat they had, and snorkeling down. He picked up a shell from the uh, the sea floor from the reef, uh, and it was a, a shiny but beautiful thing, shiny black thing, about the size, roughly the size of an egg, I suppose. And uh, the Fijian guys on the boat were quite uh, enchanted by this. They said, "Oh, that's very, very rare." What do you think it's worth? Said Rupert. <laughs> <laughs> they looked at him bemused. Worth? They had no idea. Well, if I if I sold it, what would I get for it? Said Rupert. Right. Uh, I thought that was most indicative. Rupert uh, has a price on everything, but knows the value of very little. <laughs> well, there, yes. Well, you, you're very um, critical of the Murdoch Empire. I mean, these yeah. days you see it as an ill force in journalism. You cite a litany of its crimes. Uh, I don't need to repeat them now. Um, and you also talk about uh, Rupert's overweening need for power. But, yeah. but would you accept that uh, that Murdoch, for all those faults, um, has invested a lot of dough into journalism and he keeps a lot of journalists employed? Okay. Yeah, no, that's that's uh, unarguable. And he, he has a lot of very, very good journalists. I mean, mm. dozens and dozens, legions of good journalists work for Rupert. Uh, but in the end, uh, it is all done in the interest of Rupert's power and profit. I, I think I think Murdoch is largely apolitical. He naturally leans to the right, as most moguls do, but is perfectly happy to do deals with the left in when it suits him, as he did once with Whitlam, as he did with Tony Blair, and as he did with Kevin Rudd. Mm. Uh, Rupert likes to back winners and then go to them and say, look, ha, I put you there. Now what are you going to do for me? Yeah, so you think Rupert would be lining up Bill Shorten right now? Um, not if you read the Australian the Telegraph. They're, they're, they're still working on uh, on demolishing Bill Shorten, you know, hammering him to the dirt. But that may well change if it becomes obvious that uh, inevitable that Shorten will win. Uh, there'll be a there'll be a, a not so subtle realignment of editorial views, and there'll be encouraging words for Mr. Shorten because mm. Rupert knows you'll need him. Mm, yes, yeah, so, <laughs> I mean it's interesting also talking about the Oz for a second. Uh, you make mention of the book. I mean, the Oz does surprise from time to time. I, I think you know, for instance, it was one of the it was a lone voice campaigning against Australia's involvement in uh, Vietnam. Yeah, well, God, yes, but that was that was a that was a very ago. different Australian and a very different set of writers I and mean, mm. a very different set of editors. Mm. Uh, I think that, I think that was Douglas Brass was the columnist. Now, a name almost entirely forgotten now, but then a power on the land. 
and who wrote that, uh, I can't remember the exact quote, but uh, historians would look back with tears on our involvement in Vietnam, I think is what he said, something mm. like that. Mm. Now, more recently, the Oz, for instance, has uh, campaigned strongly for on Indigenous issues, possibly more so than uh, the, 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 Oz, the Oz. had you know, there are strange lacuna. You know, mm. Some things it does very well. The Oz has always been strong on Indigenous issues and always generally been on the side of the angels there. Um, mm. a, a good thing. I mean, no, it's not totally evil by, by any means, but a lot of it is. Mm. I think it's stable of columnists. I, I think it's sometimes just bizarre. <laughs> Anyone in particular? Oh, how long have we got? Um, <laughs> you know, Chris, Chris Kenny. Um, what's that, that bespectacled woman from Melbourne who thinks she's one of the ten smartest people in Australia? Whatever <laughs> the name. Um, Miranda Devine of the Telegraph. Nuts, nuts, a lot of them. <laughs> Let's talk about the ABC, where there are no, no nutty people, of course. Um, well, there are heaps of nutty people there too. <laughs> what would you do if you were the chair of the ABC? I I would fight tooth and nail for secure funding guarantees, mm. uh, not having to go cap in hand to Parliament every six months and ask for a bit of this and a bit of that. Uh, I, th I think this the ABC's goal has always been for triennial funding, a lump sum of money uh, given over the three years. Mm, mm. Uh, I think it should be longer than that. I think it should be a five-year spend. And, and totally untied at the that one of the grave mistakes that they made years ago was to accept money for special purposes, like setting up a, a regional, you know, uh, music service or whatever, whatever. Mm. Uh, they shouldn't have done that because it allowed governments to, to pick and choose what they give money for. I think that was a mistake. But its prime, its prime uh, need is for secure uh, and increased funding to allow it to do what it, what it does. Mm. That's what I'd be arguing for principally if I was chairman. So do you see any any other funding mechanism other than the existing one? You know, is there a BBC-type model, for instance, where there's a licence fee? A licence fee. Yeah. Yeah, well, there are not enough people in this country to support wholly by a licence fee. They just aren't. I mean, you, mm. you've already got 60 million odd people in Britain. You've got, what, 24 here. It simply mm. would not support the ABC. Uh, although, you know, you, you can do it partly by licence, perhaps licence. But, but then when you do that, you then make it harder to argue that taxpayers' money should also go into it as well. Advertising is totally out for two reasons. One, the ABC audience wouldn't cop it, and through and two, uh, the other media moguls wouldn't cop it either. It would destroy the advertising revenue for uh, for radio and television. Mm. So, well, although oh, SBS manages to sneak in a bit of advertising. Yeah, they do, but they haven't got a huge audience, and it doesn't really take away much. It's a, it's a fairly specialised audience. It doesn't take away much from the, the, the broad mainstream media. Mm. Uh, but advertising on the ABC would uh, would absolutely destroy the business model for the Australian, for example, and probably the Financial Review, and, and God knows who else as well. Mm. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Because I mean, what do we learn about the ABC this year? Given you know the spat between Milne and Guthrie, it's been a very bad year for the ABC, hasn't it? On, yeah. on that front, I mean, it's done some great journalism, of course, but. It has done some great journalism, most of it due, uh, due to my wife, I hasten to add. Yes, well, you <laughs> Number can... two at four corners. <laughs> yes. You can uh, say all of that, I'm sure. But, yeah. Yeah, but, but the, when you look back at it, a lot of, a lot of those, those troubles were brought on by this very government in general, in particular by the Minister uh, Fifield. Mm. Uh, God knows where Guthrie came from. Um, appointing Milne, a mate of Malcolm Turnbull, was a bizarre thing to do. And uh, and then uh, after Abbott's promise that not a dollar would be taken from the ABC, the success, both his government and then Turnbull uh, dived in and cut you know, millions here and millions there. It was absolute fraud.
So, yes, uh, how is the mood in the ABC these days, do you reckon? I'm pretty sure they're shell-shocked by the, the, the savagery of the, of, the, of the Milne Guthrie thing and the fallout from it, no doubt about that. Uh, I imagine some senior executives still running for cover over that one too. Yeah. But there's, there's despondency because they are running on the smell uh, of an oily rag. Uh, there, is, there is so little money there uh, for good programs. I mean, Four Corners, I know, and I, uh, is run with extraordinary efficiency. But, and every dollar counts, but they are short. They are short of money. Yeah. Uh, other programs are as well. There are, there are cuts here and cuts there. And more and more, I mean, there's almost no Australian drama on the ABC anymore. Very, very little of it. Uh, there's a lot of cheap chat shows and so on. This is television we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Radio is equally strapped. They just need more money. Well, do you, but do you think that the ABC tries to do too much? Um, you know, multiple. No, broadly, I don't. I, it's, it's got to go. It's got to move into the digital space. There's oh, yeah, absolutely sure. no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, as much as, as the uh, as the other proprietors don't like it, the, the Kerry Stokes and Nine and, and Murdoch and so on. But then newspaper proprietors and old media proprietors have been complaining about the ABC since 1935, mm-hmm. moving into their space. I mean, when the ABC News Department was set up just after the, um, the Second World War, they howled about that too. It would destroy mm-hmm. the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age and God knows what else. It didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess the ABC has got to move into that digital space, otherwise it, it, it'll it'll simply wither and die. Mm, okay, fair enough. Um, let's go back to the book. Uh, you read the read read this book, and you go, uh, "This guy was an uh, was a workaholic." You know, you, there's radio, there's TV, print. You, you did it all, um, often all at the same time. So, what drove you? I guess I like doing it. You know, I. <laughs> I, I, I I love journalism. I've, I've become vastly disenchanted with journalism now. I've left it. But I loved it at the time. It was an exciting job. Mm. Uh, you were there, if not at the centre of things, but certainly with a ringside seat to them. And, and I still think those possibilities are there for young journalists today if they, if they play it right and, and do it right. It, it was an exciting, glamorous job. Mm. Uh, it, some of it yeah, was sheer drudgery. Uh, there's no doubt about that, but that applies to any job. It applies to bus driving too. I dare to say it applies to brain surgery. Mm. Uh, there's drudgery in every job. But mm. at, at its high points, the satisfaction of a well-written column, which which provokes a, a, a torrent of reader response, is enormously exciting. Mm. Even after years and years, I still got a thrill out of seeing what I'd written on a printed page, as, as old-fashioned as that might sound. Mm. Mm. Radio, radio was the high-wire act because there was no there's no editorial uh, filter between your mouth and the microphone. Yeah, there's nothing at all. There's no sub-editor to say strike that out or rewrite this or do that. You're just there. Mm. That was that was the most exciting thing of all. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we, the well, audience response on radio is immediate, as it is in no other medium. Yes. So it's, you're in their head. You're in their ears. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So you went to the UK in the early uh, 1990s and you shook up uh, London Broadcasting, both the station and, in a sense, the radio community and the and the public um, because you were sort of more direct. You were very Australian. You were more direct than the kind of somewhat deferential style. Yeah. There's <laughs> a great piece in the book where you tell one MP to piss off. Um, there's also you called the Bosnian war criminal Radovan Karadzic a liar and asked Jerry Adams... Mm-hmm. If getting the British out of Northern Ireland was worth killing innocent men, women, and kids, yeah, and it worked. Yeah, I I, I love that interview with Jerry because he, he hadn't been interviewed for years because Margaret Thatcher put a ban on him right. uh, to deprive the IRA of the, the oxygen of publicity. I think is that right? 
Uh, but we discovered that because Adams was running, standing as an MP for the House, running as an MP for the House of Commons election, that he uh, had a right to be interviewed, and we did it. Stunned everybody. Uh, mm. His voice was actually heard and uh, hadn't been for years. And I thought, well, I'd, I'd previously done an interview with the ODSC and Paisley and, and carved him up a bit, mm. and I thought, well, I can do no less with Jerry Adams. So of we course. had uh, an increasingly tense and angry uh, confrontation, uh, which, really- I, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Remind me, what did he say when you asked him that question? Um, he, sp- he spluttered and uh, he spluttered and 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 blew it. He he had no satisfactory answer. Right. Uh, and and it was obvious that it was not a question he'd considered. And I still don't believe that an Irish republic is worth the death of innocent children in British supermarkets. Mm. Is it? <clears> is it? <throat> it's probably worth the death of a British prime minister, metaphorically speaking. Well, and they tried that too. They, yes. they tried very hard to kill Margaret Thatcher. And then they remember they landed all those, those bombs in the garden of Downing Street and so on. Yeah. Um, in a sense, I suppose you could argue that a British Prime Minister is a legitimate target. The IRA could say, well, that's, you know, this is the, these are the oppressors we're trying to overthrow. Mm. But when you set up a bomb in a Tesco supermarket in Liverpool or whatever the hell it is, and then. And, and, uh, for a random and indiscriminate explosion. Now, that's, um, mm. That is a vicious savagery and the IRA. Yeah, what I, what I was getting at was the sort of metaphorical death of the uh, British current British Prime Minister over Brexit, of course, because they can't solve oh. the Northern Ireland border question. Yeah, yeah. And there's a Tory MP come out the other day and say, oh, well, if the Irish were allowed to start, they might have a rethink about that. What? <laughs> back, to back, the, to, back to 1840. Yeah, back to 1848, the potato family. Yeah, that's yeah. right. I, I, British politics, I mean... We, God knows, I look at Australian politics and you, you wring your hands in despair. But when you look at British politics, uh, it is a collective act of national suicide. Wouldn't, you, wouldn't you love to be there doing that now? Oh, I'd love, I'd love to be there covering it. Absolutely love to be there covering it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because it, it is – well, they're, they're serious people for a start, the Brits. I mean, they, they really are serious. They, they do serious and intelligent things. And occasionally they do absolutely crazy, stupid things, which are in the process of doing at the moment. Uh, the whole Brexit thing is, is, a, is a calamity, a catastrophe, a disaster, call it what you will. Mm. Uh, and I suspect they will emerge a very much diminished little island because of it. Yes. But the, the political process afford a fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Going back to your time in London, what did the Poms make of you? Were, were you the quintessential, you know, rude Aussie? No, no, I, I wasn't. I started to speak POM. <laughs> uh, I, I, my, my voice morphed. And the English would still tell I was an Australian, but the Australians thought I'd all gone all POM, which in a way I had. It just happens to be I, I, I do accents, I do mimicry, and I picked up an English accent. No, they were enormously receptive, in fact, not because of anything particularly I did, but because they most most of the British had long ago given away the um, the uh, the imperial auteur, if you like. Mm. Um, people like Clive James and Germain uh, Greer and uh, yeah, Richard, uh, Richard Neville had, had mm. paved the way. And, and Australians had become quite respectable right. yeah, in, in London by the time I got there. So the path had been smoothed by far greater intellects than mine. And they were far more tolerant of an Australian broadcasting to them than Australians would be if a Brit coming out here and doing the same. I'm, I'm sure of that. They, mm. were, they were warm and they were warm, welcoming, delightful people. I have, I'm an enormous, uh, enormously devout Anglophile. Mm. Yeah. Uh, well, talking about uh, Australian radio personalities, you mentioned Alan Jones. You've worked with him. You've worked with John Laws. You've worked with uh, Stan Zamanik. Mm-hmm. Uh, Laws became a bit of an ally of yours uh, for a while, but not so Alan. How would you yeah, know? well... 
You go, Laws and I had this up and down relationship yes. for years. We, we, we feuded, we, we lunched together, we feuded again. So at the moment, we, um, we're, it's all lovely. Well, and I, I, I confess I like John Laws. He's entertaining at lunch. Uh, uh, and he was, a, he was the consummate radio professional. Hmm. Jo- Jones, I, I, I dislike intensely, uh, hmm. and I despise his manner of broadcasting. Uh, I, I, think it's, uh, I think it's done considerable harm to the democracy over the years and considerable harm to individuals, too, with his, uh, with his uh, string of spectacular defamations, most of, most of which he's lost, the, the most recent one being against that Wagner family in, uh, in mm. Queensland. I, I find his style of broadcasting is contemptible. Wouldn't you say, though, he's a good broadcaster? In no, so, he wins no, the ratings every time. I mean, what, no, it's just a noisy one. He's not a good one. Right. <laughs> right. A, a good one implies a certain technical ability to do clever things with radio in the way that Laws does, you know, or, or do. Right. Uh, the parrot just sits there at a green baize table with a microphone on and shouts. So how do you explain his influence on politics in not only New South Wales, in the, in the country generally? I mean, it's, it's not yeah. just about berating, surely. I find it inexplicable, uh, uh, almost impossible to explain. But Jones, Jones's great strength is, is he is persistent. He never, ever, ever gives up, mm. and so he has he has worked his way into a position where um, uh, politicians li- live in terror of him. I mean, Bob mm. Carr told me once of, of his entire cabinet sitting around once in Macquarie Street, uh, wondering what pronouncements Jones might make on a decision they'd just taken. They're terrified of him. He had mm. to shoot them all back to work. Yeah, it's remarkable, isn't it? So Jones has got the power that politicians in particular, and others, but politicians have been prepared to accord him. Mm. Mm. Uh, and that that speaks to me of cowardice on the, by the political classes. Well, yes. In fact, most people in Australia don't listen to him. 80% of people, 85% of Sydney doesn't listen to him. Uh, and nobody in Melbourne gives a stuff or Perth gives a stuff either way about Alan Jones. Mm, yeah. But politicians do, uh, and in particular in the Liberal Party, where someone said rather perceptively the other day, uh, he speaks to the Liberal Party base, to the people out there in the branches and, uh, and so on. Mm. Uh, and then they they relayed back to their local members, mm. and that's mm. that's part of James's secret. That, that's how it works. Um, yeah. we, we've got time for a couple more questions, then we have to wrap it up. Um, what? How's the book going, by the way? It's been out a little uh, while. You, good, is it good, falling off the com- shelves? A lot of competition out there. Kerry O'Brien just put out his memoirs, which are even bigger than mine. Right. Them, sort of a, a, a little, you know, a small small leaflet compared to a <laughs> massive, massive thumping great brick. <laughs> Um, Lee Sales has got a great book out, which is selling gangbusters as well. So the competition is pretty stiff at the moment, but it's doing good. The publishers are uh, doing well. Mm. The publishers are happy. And what's the next volume? Uh, Ah, I'd like to maybe do another crack at naval history, I think, possibly. But I'm not going to do it for a year. I'm just going to go swimming for a year and look after my 10-year-old son. Well, happy days, happy days. Mark Carlton, thank you so much for being on 4th Estate. Peter, could I just... Yes, yeah, of course. Could I say that you're one of the finest editors I ever worked for? We're in the business of mutual admiration. You can say that. We'll have to edit it out. (laughs) No, leave it in. You you were fabulous at the Sydney Morning Herald, and it was to the paper's great loss when you left. Well, thank you for saying that. uh, It is a bit of a mutual appreciation society. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Uh, Mike, thank you so much, and uh, all the best with uh, this book. Uh, as I say to the listeners, I'd strongly recommend it. It's a it's a rollicking read, but it's full of great insights as well. Um, yeah, thank you for your time. Okay, thank you. Um, so please keep listening to the Fourth Estate and downloading the podcast. Um, and 
we will be back soon. Um, but in the meantime, stay in touch with us on Facebook or on Twitter, where our handle is Fourth Estate AU. And thank you to my esteemed producer, Anthony Dockrell. My name is Peter Frey. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.